The Air Force has seen its share of curveballs when it comes to budget and acquisition. Between inflation, the war in Ukraine, and COVID, the service is trying to ensure the industry supply chains stay solid and that the acquisition timelines don't slip. Federal News Network's Scott Mossioni discussed some of those issues with the service's Deputy Assistant Secretary for Contracting, Major General Cameron Holt. There's been a a whole flock of black swans, (laughs) I would say, that have come along. But I have always been a really strong believer in Americans' ability to overcome things. And uh, frankly, in this relationship that we have between the military and industry, as long as we keep our eyes on what's important and not get uh, uh, too far down in the weeds um, and manage that relationship, I think we can have a very positive conversation about how can we work together to make sure we do the right things, not only for the warfighter, but for the taxpayer as well. Um, so you mentioned inflation. Uh, inflation is a, is a tough issue. Um, and it's not real easy when you're dealing with complex programs. And so uh, you might see an index like the producer uh, price index, but that index is not sufficient to apply to everything. And so at this conference, you have a lot of pricing experts. And it's essential for our pricing experts to really be at, at the head of the table, really looking deep into what's going on in the dynamics of uh, inflation in our economy and what portions of that are affecting what um, elements of cost in our in our programs and then coming up with unique contracting tools uh, to uh, accommodate that and uh, allow for it without um, resorting to big large measures that, uh, that that could waste a lot of money or not even solve the problem. Are there any specific policy things that you can do? You know, I realize there were some uh, EPA-type things that the Defense Department put out. How are you trying to protect businesses, protect your supply chain, and you know, make sure that things can, can end up in the hands of the warfighter in a timely manner during this, this hard time? Yeah, so, I mean, there are tools that we have used in the past, kind of like economic um, price adjustment, uh, that, like you mentioned. Um, It's been a long time since our folks have had to use those tools, Uh, but I don't think that we're um, so rusty that we don't know how to apply them correctly. Uh, And certainly our contracting officers and pricers are empowered to work with their industry counterparts uh, to that end to make sure that we have the right tool contractually for the right problem. But I actually think that we can do even more than that. Um, As I said from the stage just a, a few minutes ago, I used an example where if we really understand how business is run, not just in the prime, but in the suppliers as well, you'll understand that um, running inventories, for one example, uh, to as on the ragged edge of how low you can get it is always best for a balance sheet and a business. But when you have the possibility of these several black swans coming or the dynamics of inflation or Uh, war in Ukraine or other disruptive um, influences, I think that there's ways to start examining our supply chains in ways that we haven't done before and really think through how can we take the burden off of different suppliers in their balance sheets and income statements and cash flow statements and come up with unique tools that we may not have used before. Some tools that are not even maybe contractual but budgetary. For one example, if we understood a supply chain's fragility in five different places of fragility that have an exaggerated effect on schedule at the prime level, 
Um, there, there, I believe there are possibilities to go budget differently and to use contractual tools to solve that problem. If we were to fund, for example, directly fund additional inventories beyond what would be normally acceptable for a business person, a reasonable business person in, in an in a element of the supply chain that's very fragile uh, with no pass-throughs, um, that would alleviate a number of problems at the same time. Because that government-funded inventory might be very small, and it may not be very expensive, but the resilience that it adds in the supply chain without harming the balance uh, statement of that company could be enormous. And if we analyze and understand our supply chains better, um, then I think we'll see a lot of those kinds of opportunities to improve the resilience, drop the cost while maintaining a, a healthy, profitable, a very small change in the amount of inventory that you might have uh, can get you be beyond uh, a missed delivery. Um, that one aircraft that didn't show up, that one uh, truck that had an accident. There, there are uh, fragilities in our supply chains that I'm not sure we do as, as good a job as analyzing as we, as we should. And I don't think that the fixes to those problems would actually be that expensive. Um, but what we haven't done before is use our knowledge of business and then use our knowledge of contracting and pricing and come up with solutions that are unique that way that don't require us to resort to inexact measures like a like a, a PPI measure or something that would be less exact um, or even worse, um, allowing the entire supply chain just, just, just to sign up to some arbitrary escalation percentage um, where nobody really knows what the truth is going to look like. So I think we I think we have the skills and the ability um, but we just need the we need the time and the partnership to go work that together, and I think we can do it. Uh, one of the things that you talked about during your speech, which was really interesting, was the PPBE process, and the Defense Department's been tasked by Congress, I think, to look at that process. You know, could you talk to me a bit about the struggles that you have with that process now in the 21st century? And then you had some interesting solutions too that that I would like to hear. <laughs> The commercial technology marketplace in America has just been unbelievable. And uh, the kind of innovation and the rapid speed to market in cell phones and automobile advances and all kinds of things in, in America has just been unbelievable in a positive direction. The problem is we're still using a 1961 process to resource that. In some cases, we have um, a requirements process where a very smart major or lieutenant colonel in the Pentagon somewhere is writing, doing their best to write a requirement that, that requires the state of the art in technology. But on the military side of the market, the state of the art may be years behind what the commercial market is. And perhaps that requirement is 10 years old by the time it ever gets to a, even a request for a proposal. And so I think we got to start thinking with a clean sheet of paper and start to challenge our underlying assumptions about our system. And so, the, as I said from the stage, I think the budgeting process definitely uh, needs to change. I'm really proud of the uh, House Armed Services Committee and the Senate Armed Services Committee for, um, for recognizing that. Um, and I think the appropriators need to be involved in that discussion as well. Um, the effort is to make sure that we don't defy our own constitution. Certainly Congress has the right and the duty to oversee our spend, and we should not try to avoid that. 
I do, however, believe that it has to be modernized. Major General Cameron Holt, Air Force Deputy Assistant Secretary of Contracting, speaking with Federal News Network's Scott Mossioni. Check out Scott's story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Hello, I'm WIPA CEO Shane Canfield, and thank you for joining us on another episode of Lessons in Leadership. I'm honored to be joined by Angie Bailey, founder and CEO of Ananda Life. Angie has a remarkable career in public service, beginning as a GS2 clerk typist with the Social Security Administration. And over the next 40 years, Angie steadily worked her way up through the government, ultimately becoming the Chief Human Capital Officer at the Department of Homeland Security. She's been recognized with presidential rank awards by two administrations for leadership, innovation, dedication, and commitment to the country. Angie, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Shane. What a pleasure to be here. Angie, you've made quite a name for yourself as a leader in the federal workforce. Who was the first person you remember looking up to as a leader? And what about them inspired you? you know, I often think about this because you know, sometimes we think of the people that we look up to the most is being somebody that throughout our career has, you know, been at the highest levels and all, but I, you know, I've got to go back to honestly, whenever I was 10 years old and uh, I remember I really wanted to play little league play- baseball on a boys team. I was the only girl. And interestingly, it was the women who would keep saying to me that, no, I couldn't play. And then one day, whenever I was there to sign up yet again, uh, there was this guy, his name was Delbert Beiser. And uh, I remember he had like red hair and he had wadded tobacco in his mouth and greasy overhauls and everything. And he said, you know, I'll take her, I'll take her on my team. And, you know, just looking back on that, there's so many leadership lessons and things that I just really admire about him. And actually, I thought about throughout my entire career, he took a chance on somebody he didn't know. He um, put aside whatever conscious or unconscious biases that he might have had about having a girl on a team. He treated me the same, Uh, whether, you know, if I wasn't performing, I got benched just like the boys. I got no special treatment. and, and, And he was just really honest with me and he just included me in everything. And so looking back on it, you know, really, it was Delbert Beiser, our local mechanic in our little small village that was I think my inspiration for going on to, I hope, become the leader, um, you know, that, that I wanted to be. I'd say half of the guests on this podcast have had similar stories where they reach back to either childhood or young adulthood. And I, and I think as leaders, it's really incumbent upon us to keep that in mind, that, that what we say and do especially in the younger ages, really can have a lifelong impact. How would you describe your leadership style and and how's that developed over time? I would say that the one word that describes my leadership style is that I care. Um, I guess that's more than one word, but I care. Uh, I've always cared about the mission. I've always cared about the people. I've always cared, you know, about making sure that that they had what they needed or that they were developing the way, uh, you know, that they aspired to develop. And I tried to take this approach of not treating people the way I wanted to be treated, but instead treat people the way they wanted, they want to be treated. And I think that that really kind of developed over my career. You know, I started out just like most leaders do where it's very results driven. It's all about the bottom line. You need to make sure that you get everything accomplished because, you know, that's what everybody's looking for, the goals, the metrics, et cetera. But I think as you mature and you go along, you start to, to your point, you draw back on those early childhood days or early adult, young, 
you know, whenever you're a young adult and you say, you know, I think that there's a little bit more to this than just the bottom line. And so over time, I really began to, I, I think, see a much bigger picture and the entire ecosystem, if you will, and how the people themselves fit into all of this. And that ultimately, at the end of the day, it was all about the people. And so, I, you know, I think my, my maturity allowed me to then shift and focus more on the people than, than so much on results and bottom line. You've been recognized with two presidential rank awards two different administrations. You founded your own company. Tell us a little bit more about your background from the beginning and and how did that lead you to where you are today? Well, you know, it's kind of interesting, like you said, that I started out as a GS2, Social Security Administration. I mean, what I really wanted to be was a criminal prosecuting attorney. That was absolutely my dream. I sometimes joke and say what I really wanted to be was a mafia don, but that wasn't going to work out. So, you know, had to be a criminal prosecuting attorney. But, you know, I had to get a job to pay for college. I, you know, it wasn't in the cards that I was going to be able to go to college without a job. So I applied at the Social Security Administration, or I'm sorry, at the unemployment office. And lo and behold, I got a job at Social Security. I didn't even know it was federal, to be honest. Uh, from there, I went to the Department of Defense and I found this, this career field called labor and employee relations. And honestly, it was as close as I was going to get to being a criminal prosecuting attorney. I didn't go on to be a, a criminal prosecuting attorney, but I went on courtesy of Department of Defense to get both my bachelor's and my master's in leadership, because the whole study of leadership, I just find incredibly fascinating. Um, you know, from hi- historical to current uh, current times, I just, it's just something that's just really fascinated me. And so I just, I would say I'm a lifelong learner of leadership. And then I would say some of the other things that got me maybe where I am today is I never really said no to anything. If people asked me to take on a new challenge, even if I wasn't sure I was going to be successful at it, I would say, you know what, not sure this is going to work out, but more than happy to give it a try. And it always worked out. But I think giving things a try and just not saying no to opportunities is what really led from one position to the next. I feel like I was always rewarded for just stepping in or stepping up and taking on the challenges that sometimes no one else wanted to do. Angie, thanks so much for joining us today. Oh, thank you, Shane. It's such a pleasure. I I really appreciate you giving me this opportunity. Thank you. This has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm CEO of WEPA, Shane Canfield. Looking forward to talking to you next time. This episode is brought to you by Zelle. Whenever you're sending money through an app or online, it's important to do it safely. Here are a few helpful tips. First, always make sure you know and trust the person you are sending money to. Second, confirm you have entered their contact details correctly. And finally, if you don't trust the person or your recipient is rushing you to send money right away, think twice before sending money through an app or online. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.